0: Okay, if you have your Bibles, you can turn in them to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 26. Um, If you don't uh, have your Bibles, uh, it's okay. We're going to go ahead and I'm going to be reading this passage. Um, Actually, this passage and... uh, I'm actually going to start off with a passage from Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, and then jump on over to the book of Deuteronomy. But Deuteronomy is where we're going to be kind of hanging out for most of the service, so as soon as, you, uh, as, soon as we're done, you can go ahead and turn there. But right now, if you could all stand for the reading of Scripture. Ecclesiastes 11, 1 and 2. Ship your grain across the sea. After many days, you may receive a return. Invest in seven ventures. Yes, in eight. Do not, you do not know when disaster may come upon the land. And when you enter the land, the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance and have taken possession of it and settled in it, take some of the first fruits of all that you produce from the soil of the land the Lord your God is giving you and put them in a basket. Then go to the place the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for his name, and say to the priest in office at the time, I declare today to the Lord your God that I've come to the land the Lord swore to our ancestors to give us. The priest shall take the basket from your hands and set it down in front of the altar of the Lord your God. Then you shall declare before the Lord your God, my father was a wandering Aramean, And he went down into Egypt with a few people, and he lived there and became a great nation, powerful and numerous. But the Egyptians, the Egyptians mistreated us and made us suffer, subjecting us to harsh labor. Then we cried out to the Lord, the God of our ancestors. And the Lord heard our voice and saw our misery, toil and oppression. So the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great terror and with signs and wonders. He brought us to this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And now I bring the first fruits of the soil that you, Lord, have given me. Place the basket before the Lord, your God, and bow down before him. Then you and the Levites, and the foreigners residing among you, shall rejoice in all the good things the Lord, your God, has given you and your household. When you finish setting aside a tenth of all your produce in the third year, the year of the tithe, you shall give it to the Levite, the foreigner and the fatherless and the widow, that they may eat in your towns and be satisfied. Then say to the Lord your God, I have removed from my house the sacred portion and have given it to the Levite, the foreigner, the fatherless and the widow, according to all that you have commanded. I have not turned aside from your commands, nor have I forgotten any of them. Verse 16, the Lord your God commands you this day, to follow these decrees and laws, carefully observing them with all of your heart, with all of your soul. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. This uh, mini-series that we're in, we're taking a brief break from the story. We're going to finish the story up, um, we're going to jump back into it the last weekend in April, but this is a three-week mini-series. We're focusing on a key aspect of who we are as Christians, uh, who we are as, as humans, and who we are as, as specifically, though, as Christians. Um, and this really deals with the whole concept of our resources and our funds and our generosity. And that's honestly something that um, pastors like me hate talking about because we've seen so many churches and pastors and people on television abuse the concept of money with regard to faith. The problem is, is that when I get uh, gun shy about actually speaking about that, that only hurts you. And the reason that only hurts you is because the fact that Scripture speaks to our funds and our resources as being vitally important over thousand times, thousands of times, actually directly and indirectly. And when when we come to just who Jesus is, Jesus himself actually thought it was so important to talk about the idea of how we handle our resources and our money that he spoke about money more than heaven or hell combined. Why? Why in the first century would Jesus spend so much time there were, there were no buildings to build. There was no church campaigns. There was no television thing. None of that. What was the big deal? Why was Jesus so fixated on talking about this issue so often with the people he was trying to train up to be his followers? No. <laughs> that's a good thing. That's a good, actually, that's a Bible verse that a lot of people believe, but it's not even true. Um, money isn't the root of all evil, is it? The love of money is the root of all evil. And that's actually something where we actually, when we see people, Jesus knowing that this oddball thing of money has a way of taking us and capturing our hearts in such a way that it can totally ruin families, totally ruin couples, totally ruin people groups. And it's something that we actually talk about. Like the second you guys leave here, you guys are going to be thinking about where you're going to eat, what you're going to do with the rest of your day. And you know what that's going to be? That's going to use money. You guys are actually going, you're looking at, you're going to get to the point of paying bills. You're going to say, What in the world? How could you possibly spend this on boots? And then, and then the wife is going to say, What in the world? How could you possibly spend this much on top golf? And, and, and all of a sudden it goes back and forth, and, all of a sudden you're, and you're frustrated. And money is something that is every, it's as much as our life and our lifestyle as breathing. And so when the church or a church pastor fails to speak to it, it leaves this absence of wondering what in the world are we supposed to, how are we supposed to handle this? And that hurts you. And so for the reality of of what we're going to be doing in this three-week series, I want us to engage this because Jesus wanted his followers to understand God's perspective on this so that their hearts would beat in rhythm, in sync with his heart on the way that we look at our resources, our funds, and how we invest them in this world. We only have one life, We have a limited amount of of resources. How we invest that is imperative. Now, let me just say this. If you're not a Christian today, you don't have to worry about a thing I'm saying, okay? In fact, if you're not a Christian here today, but a Christian brought you, I want you just to elbow them throughout the sermon and say, this is for you. Are you paying attention to this? This isn't for me. Okay, so make sure that they know that because as a Christian, this is again imperative in your discipleship. If you're going to be a follower of Jesus, that's actually following what Jesus taught. But to truth be told, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, this is something that we all grapple with. A couple years back, the Huffington Post um, had an article that said money can make you less sad, but not more happy. And the article was, was uh, researching the social science and the psychological science behind the fact that so many people who actually get money or actually get the promotion or actually get out of debt, they're less sad, but they're not more happy. Uh, um, financial uh, strain, can cause massive anxiety, being crazy in debt makes you feel like you're in over your head, you're never going to get out. And you know what it's like if, you, if you're in debt massively or you, you've been in debt massively. You know how that is something that weighs on you every day. And you also know that if you get out of debt or if you get the promotion, whatever, there's a sense of, oh yeah, okay, that's good. That's good. Let's keep it that way. It can make you less sad, but the thing that they were odd, uh, oddly finding is that even though it can make you less sad, it does not for the long haul make you more happy. Why not? It's because of the fact that God actually didn't design us as human beings to be people who are simply financially secure or wealthy as a source of happiness. That there is something about our funds, and the way we look at our funds, that has a lot to do with generosity. Generosity was something that that played far more of a role in a person's joy or happiness than how much they had. People could be happy that are incredibly poor or incredibly rich based on that one component that God has embedded into us as humans. The concept of generosity impacts the way that we view God, how we view our stuff, and how we view the mission that God has called us into. And so as Christians, when we're thinking about who we are as Christians or how we're becoming more and more like Jesus, this is a vital component of that. So this morning, what we're going to be really talking is how do we get from stuff to sacrifice? How do we actually recognize that everything is God's and useful for his great impact? And how does he call me into that? And so we're going to look at the source of our stuff this morning. We're going to look at how to steward, the, the stewardship of our stuff, and then the strategy for using our stuff throughout this morning, and, and really banking on Deuteronomy chapter 26. First off, with the source of our stuff, um, that really obscure passage that I started off by reading, that everyone probably was thinking, "I have no idea what he's talking about." It's from Ecclesiastes, and there's a reason. It's, if you felt like I'm cast your bread upon. The waters. That doesn't make any sense. Why would you do that? Um, if you feel like that's odd, you're not alone, because modern scholars don't really know what Solomon, who wrote this, was talking about. Um, they don't know for sure what he was talking about, because this is something that we don't talk about today, casting your bread upon the water. The only thing I, I've ever seen, like bread going into water is in like in a hot dog, like eating contest, to eat it faster. That's it. What was, and, that, and I don't think Solomon was pulling that off, because That'd be far from kosher. What is he talking about when he says, cast your bread upon the water, for, it, for you will find it after many days. The more that they've looked into this, they believe this is an ancient Jewish way of talking about impacting the turbulent waters around you of poverty. That in the turbulent waters around you of poverty, casting your bread out there was this idea of taking a portion of what you've brought in for your family, the bread corn, and casting the bread corn out in the turbulence around you. Which is what makes the following verse so odd, additionally odd because he says, don't only, only do that, give a portion to seven or eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on this earth. Now again, this is Solomon. He's supposed to be one of the wisest individuals of, of human history. And yet, what is Solomon doing? Solomon is saying, hey, you don't know how crazy or turbulent financial reality could be for right now. You don't know about your 401k. You don't know about your retirement. So because things are so crazy, turbulent, and uncertain, you should be liberal in how you use your funds to help other people. When natural tendency would, say, be more fiscally conservative, Solomon is saying, for us, what we do is when things are more crazy, we actually get more liberal and more more generous in what we're giving to others. How in the world could someone so smart say something so dumb? The only way that he could is if Solomon knows something that we don't, and that's this, the source of our stuff, it's all God. Everything that we have, he is the source. And whenever, whenever you see in, in Jewish, Solomon is writing Ecclesiastes, built in banking on something he studied as a kid. In the Torah, it starts to talk about this reality of the fact that everything is sourced back to God. Everything that we have as God's people, we can source it back to him. If you take a look in Deuteronomy chapter 26, you see it. He says this, when you have entered the land, the Lord your God is giving you. Take some of the first fruits of all that you produce from the soil of the land. The Lord your God is giving you, and put them in a basket. And so what he's saying is this: um, remember back back when we were like slaves? We were oppressed? And we had we had no rights. I mean, we were total slaves. And then God got us out. God rescued us. And he brought us into a land, and he didn't set us up so we would have, like, we could outgun, outsmart, out-military campaign the country we are going into. God said that it was ours. And so he took us, a minority movement that was outgunned and, and, and out, outmanned and out-strategied from, from these guys who were military geniuses, and he took this minority movement, this group of kindergartners who were going up against al-Qaeda, and we succeeded So that we would know that the source of our success was not us or anything we have or anything we could do, but it was God. And so for the Jewish mindset, they would always source everything back to God did it. When you have entered the land, the Lord your God is giving you. Not that you earned, not that you purchased, not that you won, but that God gave you. The source of everything is him. He was making it clear that God's people recognize that God is totally God over every part of our reality. We are not our own. Paul in the New Testament even talks about how like our bodies aren't even our own. These, this isn't mine. This is God's body. And so what I choose to do with this body is imperative because it's not mine. My finances, my, my resources, my house, my car. I may have the deed to those. I may have the title to those, but they're not mine. The source of that is God. Now, if God is the source, then that, that actually causes something in me. If the source of my stuff is it's all God, then the stewardship of my stuff has to be reflecting that. That means that, that I'm, I'm operating as if it's not mine. And you, you handle things that are not yours differently than if you're the owner. Um, so what, what God does is this. He doesn't simply say, okay, I am the source of everything. I, I, all, everything that you have is mine, so I'm just going to just invisibly siphon it. <laughs> I'm going to invisibly siphon all of all of your the, the grain offering that I want from you, and it's gonna be gone. He doesn't do that. God actually does what you and I do in every relationship that's important to us. Every relationship that's important to you, whether it's a girlfriend and a boyfriend, whether it's a husband and wife or a parent or a kid or a or a coworker, the important relationships we have, we have some type of an interaction. There has to be some type of physical interaction where I'm talking to you or we're actually going together or we're embracing. There's some type of physical interaction that shores up the fact that we have something here that's special. So God, who's the source of all of our stuff, he doesn't simply say, it's all mine. He says, I want you to actively step into this and participate with me. Look at what happens in Deuteronomy, chapter 26, verse 10. And now I bring the first fruits of the soil that you, Lord, have given me. Place in the basket before the Lord your God and bow down before him. God writes into the script of a people. I want to condition the generosity within your heart so that it's not just taken. It's it's willfully given. This is like within the law of who we are as a people as in the Hebrew, in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew people. This is who we are. But it's going to be something you have a participation with. That even though it's a sacrifice, there's going to be a joy component because it's going to be looked through the lens of a relationship. You're taking something that's mine already and giving it back to me, we have an interaction, which of course brings us to the sweet motorcycle. Okay, how many of you in here have, uh, you own a sweet motorcycle? Okay, all right, sweet motorcycles, anyone else? We have two sweet motorcycles, okay, all right, awesome, awesome, okay, Nate. Nate, what kind of a motorcycle do you have? Harley, Harley. Now I, I, don't, I don't own a motorcycle, but I understand Harleys are nice, Nate, would you let me borrow your Harley? Okay, Nate needs to work on his wisdom. Um, <laughs> two things would happen if Nate let me borrow his Harley. One, Nate probably wouldn't get his Harley back. And two, you probably would not no longer have a pastor because I don't know how to ride. The only time I've been on a motorcycle, I spilled it. It was terrible. But let's just say I, I knew how to ride. And Nate's like, he's super cool. He's like, I trust Daryl, And he gives me the keys. As soon as he gives me those keys, all of a sudden something happens in me. I realize that from the moment he gives me these keys, it's a Harley, okay? This is an investment. This is a treasure, right? The moment I get these keys, I have this heightened state of awareness that this is not mine. This is Nate's vehicle. And so when I get on that vehicle, do I think I could do whatever I want? No, I'm like, you know what it's like when you borrow some, something from someone? Some of you even, you hate to borrow anything because you're nervous, right? It gives you anxiety that you're going to break it because it's not yours. Like, I, I don't want to borrow it. I'll buy my own. I, just, I don't even want to, I'll just look at it, but I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to touch it because I, I just don't want to mess it up. We have that because we know that, we know what it's like to borrow something and have that in- insecurity of this isn't mine. What I wouldn't have any component in my brain firing on is the idea that Nate gave me the keys to borrow this so it's all mine, and I could do whatever I want to do with this, and I know exactly what I'm going to do with it because I watched Chips, and I'm going to be punch, and I'm just going, it's going to be amazing. I would never do that because through the whole time that I'd be on that motorcycle, I would be thinking, this is not mine. Now, he let me borrow it. Does that mean that I can enjoy it? Yes. In fact, I would I, if, if I could ride. I would, like be, I would enjoy every second of that. I'd be like, this is amazing. This is so cool. I could enjoy it. I could take part. I could, but, it's, but I have to realize, I would realize, that this is not mine. And there's going to come a point where I'm going to hand the keys back. But from the point the keys were given to me to the point that the keys were given back, I was just borrowing this sweet motorcycle that I could enjoy, that I could take part in, but it wasn't mine. And our life is no different. God has handed you over the keys of your life, but it's not your life. It's his. It's his life, everything in your life, your resources. He handed you the keys to those, but it's not your resources. It's not 10% his or 90% yours. It's 100% his. And so we can't possibly operate in our life or our finances as if, well, this is all for me, right? I could do whatever I want with this. No. I mean, we could if it was ours, but we're borrowing this. He's the source of everything, and we're called to be the money managers of it. We're God's money's managers. So just as much as the source is all God, stewardship is on me. As a Christian, I am God's money manager for my life. Not your life. I'm not your money manager. I'm called to be faithful with what God's given me. I'm, I'm, I'm God's money manager for my life. I then engage all that I am and all that I have as a steward taking care of someone else's treasure. Whatever's in your bank account, whatever you have as an income, that, that's someone else's treasure. It's God's treasure. And so 100% of that is his. And the cool thing about our God, if you're a Christian, if you're a believer, is our God is someone who says, I'm going to make sure that you have enough. That you have enough to take care of your family, take care of the bills. I'm going to give you enough to be able to survive. And, and then, I mean, I'm even going to give you enough to enjoy. But, but you need to realize that 100% of this is mine. So step into that in a generous way of understanding that there's things that I'm calling you to do. Now, again, because God is master, he's not our buddy, he's our master, he could say, I am the source of everything here, it is all mine, and so I just take it, period. And that's what you're supposed to do. If you're following me, I'm calling for you to give, boom, period, that's it. He could do that. But the God that we see in scripture is different. Jesus actually points out the fact that God, who's a good father, incentivizes us being the best version of ourself. He incentivizes us, just like you would, you would, you would give your kid an allowance or you would, you would pay someone for a job that they're doing, you're actually incentivizing something you want to see happen in them anyway. God, our good father, does that with us. Look what Jesus says. Jesus says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus knows that if, if we fixate on stuff or, or our finances as, as ours, that will warp us, it will twist our heart. He, he wants our treasure to be Him. And we're going to have so much joy as a result of that. But check out what Jesus doesn't do here. Jesus doesn't say, be more generous, find people who are are financially in need, or find people who are spiritually in need, and then generously pour into those people because it's right. He doesn't say, what I want you to do is is I want you to pour into people who are financially in need or spiritually in need because uh, it's going to make you more holy. He doesn't say that in this passage. Jesus doesn't say, do this because it's right. He says, do this because it's smart for you. Look what he says right there. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So we can invest in 50 years or 30 years or however long you're working um, in this life on stuff, or we could actually invest in things that are gonna be more than 50 million years in it's payoff. Now, Am I saying if you give to God, he's going to give back to you? No. No, of course, I wouldn't say that, but Jesus would. Give, and it will be given to you, for with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And so if, we're, if you're smart, you, and, and again, if you're a Christian, if you're not a Christian, please keep nudging the Christian next to you. But if you're a Christian, you're someone who's recognizing the fact that God has set things up in my reality so that when I actually invest in things generously that he's about, he's going to actually bless me as a result of that. Growing up as a pastor's kid, um, my my dad was a pastor of a really small church, and I remember being so confused. I've I've shared this before, but I remember just being so confused as why my mom and dad would talk about what they're going to give to God in the in the offering. I thought that was the I thought you I th- thought that was really dumb. Like, Dad, you're the pastor. Like, you don't have to pay. Those people pay, okay? You you are preaching and everything else. Those pe- Why why are you paying? I mean, that's like Walt Disney like paying money to go into Disneyland. That makes no sense at all. Why would you do that? And my dad said, son, it is not about, he says, I am a Christian. This is who I am. And because I'm a Christian, I give to the work of God. That's what I do. I'm like, yeah, but dad, you're the pastor. You're already given to the work of God. He said, I know, I know. But here's the thing. I never shortchange God. He's never shortchanged me. And I remember thinking, you know what though, dad? We probably could afford some cooler stuff. If you stepped it up a little bit, and I mean, God would understand My family was nowhere near rich by American standards at any point. Now any American is far richer than than other people on planet Earth. We're like crazy princes and kings compared to other parts of the world. We don't know how good we have it. But as a little kid growing up in Southern California, I was very self-aware of how little we had compared to what others had. Which is why I was so frustrated with my dad for being so generous with God and seemingly so cheapskate with us. Until I started to realize over the years what was happening with my family, um, I had a chance to watch as my parents um, gave to the church and poured into missionaries, and I got to see the work that they were doing around the world. And I got to see how God started to like He would bless our family in ways that weren't financial all the time, but sometimes there'd be a surprise there too. And I was just—I remember thinking, "Oh my goodness." Like, I had no idea how much, if my dad would have scored us all the things that I wish he would have scored us materially, what I would have missed out on seeing. And so I look back, and I remember being so thankful that my parents set up, where I remember hearing them talk about the fact, and for my parents, it was like, yeah, we're going to give a tenth of our salary, we're going to give it to the Lord, and I remember going, There's so much money that's yours, God will understand if you don't. But it was so cool because when Julie and I got married, like both of us kind of had that, that backdrop and we had a chance to see how, God, how the payout of that throughout life took place. And so it wasn't as much of a, of a conversation. It was kind of a given when we got married. But I'll tell you what was a frustration. As I saw myself in that role of being a dad of young kids and realizing that my family is not rich by any stretch of the American imagination... That they were going to be repeating that same thing and some of the same strains that I was feeling. But then I had to recall the fact that my kids had a chance we'll have a chance to have a front row seat to see God show up and provide in ways that I would not have seen if I would have thought all of this was mine, and forgot that it's his and just mine to manage. What is your plan? A lot of times when it comes to giving to God, it's the last thing, right? It's like, it's so the last part of our, like if, you know, we'll pay all our our bills and if I've got something in my pocket, when the thing goes by, I'm going to go into that. But if we want to live intentional lives, we need to be people who are making a plan for it. Uh, John Maxwell, he said this, most people, they don't write their story. They read their story because they never understood intentional living we live so reactively and haphazardly that sometimes we let that be in our spiritual disciplines as well. If you're a Christian, stepping in and making an intentional plan is, is key, which brings us to the strategy for our stuff. And the strategy for our stuff has a whole lot to do with this idea of first fruits. Again, from um, from this chapter in Deuteronomy 26, you see the effects of the strategy. Then you and the Levites, who are the, the priests within the, the the worship of God. Then you and the Levites and the foreigners residing among you shall rejoice in all the good things the Lord your God has given to you in your household. I love this because what he's saying is this: there is an effect when, when we're actually strategic and we make plans. There is an effect, and their strategy was first fruits. If you're in an agricultural society, right around uh, right around this time, you would actually take um, you would take the first fruits of of the spring crop, and right around uh, Nisan six uh, was when you'd have this festival of first fruits. And you would, you'd actually be, you're taking your first harvest and before you know whether or not the rest of the harvest is going to be good, you set aside this, this significant portion and says, okay, I'm giving this to God. I'm giving this to the foreigner in my land. I'm giving this to those in need. Uh, and I'm doing that before I know if it's going to pay out for everything else for my family or, or anything else. And it was a step of faith, but it was weird because it conditioned people to say, I'm really trusting God this much and I'm seeing how God provides year after year after year. As Christians, we actually don't have to do that. And here's why. This concept of tie, the 10%, or, or first fruits, was something that was, was an Old Testament law for God to condition his people to have their heart in, in sync and in rhythm with his. When Jesus died on the cross, he paid for all of and he actually, all of these laws were pointing up to him. And so that he actually embraced it and paid the legal side of the obligation. Uh, Paul said this, actually, in, in 1 Corinthians 15, that Jesus was the first fruit offering of God. When Jesus died on the cross, do you know what the date was on the Jewish calendar? Nisan 6. He was the first fruit offering that God gave. God gave the first and he gave the best to us to buy us a way home. He paid it, not us. But here's the cool thing that took place in Christians' lives from that point on. All of a sudden, Christians realize this Old Testament law is not an obligation anymore. I actually, because of Jesus, I'm trying to be more and more like him. And my life has now stepped into an opportunity where I'm recognizing 100% of what I have as God's. And so I'm going to be led by the Holy Spirit to figure out ways that I could plug into his kingdom and his work. And and, and early churches were doing that through their local church, but it wasn't just local churches. It was outside of that. And that, that's the amazing thing about what we have today is that we can actually be the type of people who view our stuff differently and actually see it impacting. Um, and the way that we start off by doing this is to pray. If you're single or you're in high school or you're in junior high, your role as a Christian is to pray and say, God, I need you to, to help me understand how much you want me to give. You have 100% of what I own. You have 100% of my paycheck. How much of this should I be giving? Now, some Christians, like, they stick to 10%. That's, like, that's how much they really feel convicted to give. Awesome. Some people, it's less than that. Awesome. Some people, it's more than that. Awesome. When, when um, I had a chance to, when we were doing the Ignite campaign with our church um, in building this, the uh, Next Gen building, my family, we got around the table, and, I, and we were talking about, like, different things that we would have to sacrifice. And I was really, like, as a dad, I was nervous that my kids were going to get, like, all squeamish about that and go, man, see, this is the thing that's so stupid about church. We have to sacrifice stuff for the church. But it was so cool because my kids had, I think, more faith than I did as they were willing to give up more and more stuff. And I'm like, oh, man, this is going to be two years where we're going to really be doing without. But as a family, we made that decision. And the cool thing is that as time went on, again, my kids had a front row seat to watch as God let us know some things that we thought we needed to have we didn't need to have and that God provided for things in other ways that we couldn't even possibly imagine to the point that we got to the end of that two years and Julie and I said, look, we only committed to be giving like this uh, at this level for two years, but we've seen God work so many ways. We gotta jump into that. You know, this, this is the thing. The Huffington Post is so right about money not bringing happiness, but I tell you what will. Like for my life, again, uh, money, the money that we've had has helped us be less sad. It has not brought us happiness, but what has brought us incredible joy is watching God work. And when I've seen that happen, and I see my kids see that happen, it, it, blew, it blows me away. So pray. Pray about what God wants you to do. Um, one of, when Julie and I were dating, one of the things that annoyed the snot out of her was the dumb questions that I would ask her. Because like, I'm just like, I, I have an h- awkward time with dead air. Like right now, this, that three, the one second right there freaks me out. So like dead air is not, a, I, I have to ask a question. And so I'd ask questions like, so if you're on like a desert island, what kind of weapon do you bring? And Julia's like, why are you even asking this? Because it could happen. So I'm really glad that she didn't get totally weirded out and go the other way. But, but I ask these questions of my kids sometimes too. And um, the thing that I, one of the questions that's, the fun, most fun question that I remember asking Rylan was, okay, so if you had a million dollars right? Like if someone just said, okay, this is tax-free. You don't have to worry about it. I'm just going to give you a, a, one of those awesome metal cases with a million dollars. What do you spend it on? Now, Ryland is a smart pastor's kid. And Ryland, every time I've asked this, he's like, <laughs> he's like, well, dad, I would first give a lot to the church because <laughs> that would make Jesus happy. And then I would like spend it on like amazing amount of Nerf guns and blah, blah, blah. And and then like the list goes all the way down, right? The stuff that you would expect. But as much as he's giving me the question, uh, giving me the answer that he knows that I'm looking for, knows that I'm wondering about, the truth is that he's not wrong. He's right. Um, But the the, the reality is that oftentimes we always think, man, you know what? If I had more money, if I had the million dollars, that's when I would be generous because then I'd have that ample amount, right? But God doesn't call you to do that. God actually, if you've got a million dollars, God calls you to be faithful and generous with a million dollars. If you have $100,000, God says, that's all mine. I want you to be faithful and generous with $100,000. If you've got $10,000, God says, I want you to be faithful and generous with $10,000. If you've got $10, God says, I want you to be faithful and generous with $10. I don't want you to be faithful and generous with what someone else has or something that you might have down the road. I want you to be faithful and generous with what you have now. And step into that and watch. Pray about that. If you're a couple, talk about it. Talk about what, what that's gonna look like for you. Um, I, I wanna challenge, we're giving this challenge to those who are already givers, to be people who say like, what if we like grew what we give as a percentage by one each year? And just watch to see if God let us live without that percentage and see what God did actually through it. But to take a 1% challenge And step into that for this year. You know, 1% more than what you're regularly giving and see what God does as a result of that. Now, as I say that, if you get generous and God really captures your heart as a believer, that means that some money is not gonna be coming to Manuka Bible Church. Some money is gonna be going to other areas, other organizations, mission agencies, or just with people that you interact with on a daily basis. And if this was just a a fundraiser, well, that would be bad news for Monocle Bible Church. But if this is a kingdom that we're about, that's good news. Because it's gonna grow your generosity there and here. And you're gonna see yourself blown away as that takes hold of your heart. Pray about it, then make that plan. Figure out what it is that God wants you to do and then take action. Don't, don't keep it hypothetical. Step into it. Um, this guy named Willard says this, generosity is at its core a lifestyle, a lifestyle in which we share all that we have, are, and ever will become as a demonstration of God's love and a response to God's grace. It's not enough for a church to talk about generosity, nor is it enough for individual Christians simply to commit to being generous. What makes generosity a real and powerful witness to God's love is our action. Take action. So, again, there's lots of ways. We're going to be talking about these different ways next week and the week after of way that you can pour in generously. But just speaking for our church, the way that we want to see you stepping in and priming the pump of that here is actually stepping in and say, okay, we got like this weekly offering. Um, and that's not something that's just there, so we're paying like the light bills. We keep it as part of our worship service because it's an act of worship. It's responding to a generous God generously, it's responding to, to a God of grace with grace and trust. And so that's the thing that, that a lot of people here take advantage of because some people here still write checks and stuff and, or, or whatever. Um, most people that I know that are younger than 35 don't carry a checkbook. Um, if you are like 21 years old and you carry a checkbook, you are the coolest person on planet Earth because um, you're so hipster. Nobody does that. But... Most people don't. And, and so, what, what we just realizing that we want to enable people to, to walk into that generosity, be part of that kingdom, um, we established that online giving with manukabible.org. There's a tab for that. And so, that's a way that you could step in. One thing that we saw whenever tragedy struck, from Hurricane Katrina on, is that when, when there was a need and, and people wanted to enable other people to step into that need quickly, all of a sudden the idea of being able to text to give what became a thing. And so that's also something that that you're like, okay, that's actually, because I don't, some of you don't even carry a wallet, uh, but your phone is right there and you pay for most everything either online or through your phone, that's gonna be an opportunity for you to do as well. And we just got that loaded up and so I just tried it this week and so I just wanna show you how I went to it. Um, The number's right there, feel free to jot that down. That's in your notes. You could do this right now if you'd like. Uh, but you text give to that number, and then this comes up on your screen. This is actually a screenshot of my screen with my 54% battery. You go ahead and text that, and then it says, you're almost done. Finish your gift to Manuka Bible Church with this link. You click on that, and then all of a sudden it says, I'd like to give, and this is not a generous amount right here, zero dollars. But <laughs> I'd like to give whatever to general giving, and then you can select whether this is a one-time gift or it's a weekly gift. Now here's the thing um, that for and, and if you select uh, weekly or whatever, you could actually choose however you know weekly every two weeks, the first and whatever you you kind of are able to set it up that it corresponds with your income because again this is a first fruits thing, and and you could and I want to challenge you to do so in a reoccurring way and I'll tell you why. My family has things that are set up to be reoccurring that we value. One of the things that we value are films. We value movies. And so one of the things that we have at our house is Netflix, and, we, and that's a value to us. We really like film. We really, oddly, love film. And so that's something that I don't even have to think about. Should I pay Netflix this month? It just happens, because that's a value in my family, and I want to make sure that that's always there. I don't have to worry about it. Um, and my family is able to keep that value there. Uh, it, things that we value, that we kind of step in that way. And this might be something for you where you set up a reoccurring giving um, thing where you know that every month, man, you know what? I know that right out of my paycheck comes this percentage that my spouse and I or myself have figured out what is go- it's going to be and it just happens. And the cool thing is I get to watch and see how all the rest of my month is impacted by that choice. I get to, I get to know what is actually being impacted through that as a result. A church, if we do this, again, I don't believe that we're gonna be uh, the type of people who have everything that everyone else is looking for has materially. It's actually gonna be a sacrifice. It will. It's gonna sacrifice, it might be sacrificing coffees, it might be sacrificing purchases, I don't know. But I do know this, that if we're looking to have the heart of God, that when we do this, we actually step into having the type of heart and soul that God actually converts into being someone who's in step with him and the joy that's produced in that, I'm telling you that from firsthand knowledge, is amazing. We don't do this because we're rich. We don't do this because um, we're the nicest people on planet Earth. We simply are generous because that is who we are, who we are as Christians. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for this morning's offering. Lord Jesus, I lift up to you Thanks uh, for being the one who is the source of all that we have. God, um, it's so easy to get so squeamish about talking about something so private, but Lord, I I pray that you empower us, that you liberate us to be more liberal and more generous with the the things that we hold so close to ourselves. Lord, I pray that you you, um, allow us to see the effect of that not only in our lives, but in the lives of others. Lord, the people who are um, both financially in need and spiritually in need. Lord, I pray that you bless the people in in this congregation, the believers who are following you in step. Lord, for all of us, I pray that you challenge us to follow you close. And as we do, God, see the impact that you're making. For it's in your name and for your glory we pray. Amen.